Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett, and I am the Adult Learning Programme Manager here. I'm delighted to introduce today's talk, which forms part of our International Women's Day celebrations, which, where we have a series of events this year exploring the theme of feminist futures. Today we ask Annette Wickham, curator of works on paper at the RA, who in today's talk will reveal the story of women in life drawing, including female artists campaigning for the access to art education, as well as the changing attitudes towards female models in the art schools. Annette has curated numerous exhibitions and collection displays at the Academy, including John Gibson, RA, a British sculptor in Rome, Daniel MacLeese, the Waterloo cartoon, some of you might remember that, and Drawing the Line of Times with Anne Christopher, RA. She has published on the history of the Royal Academy, its collections and its schools, most recently contributing to an introductory essay for artists working from life to accompany the From Life exhibition, and chapters on anatomy and drawing for a forthcoming book on the Academy and its collections. She is currently working on the new displays of the RA collection as part of the transformation of the RA to celebrate the 250th anniversary this year. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Annette Wickham. Thanks, good morning. Um, so as Amy just said, uh, the Royal Academy celebrates its 250th anniversary this year, making it amongst many other things, Britain's oldest art school. So it seems a good moment to reflect back on the long history of a teaching institution that has run life drawing classes uh, continuously um, from 1769 to the present day. I should just say the Academy was um, founded in 1768, but it took a few weeks before they opened the schools in January 1769. So it's actually 249 years of uh, uh, life classes, uh, but it most recently um, staged its first live-streamed life class, so it's all still continuing today in one way or another. Uh, but before this starts to sound like too much of a pat on the back for the Royal Academy, um, this talk focuses on an aspect of the Academy School's history, which is intriguing and important, but it's certainly not one that shows the institution in its best light, and that's the issue of women and life drawing. Um, the Academy's life class was the focus of persistent moral and artistic debates, particularly surrounding the question of women and their presence, or lack thereof, in the life room, both as models and as artists. Um, so I'm going to look at several moments in the Academy's history when these issues came into sharp focus. Um, the literature on women artists and on the history of British art features lengthy accounts and analyses of most of these events, but usually separately. So what I'm hoping to do is kind of string them together to give an overview of uh, changing attitudes at the Academy. Very slowly changing attitudes, I should say. <laughs> Didn't go anywhere fast with this. Um, I've divided the talk into three main sections, and it's largely chronological, so you'll know when you're getting near the end. Um, I'm first going to start with the foundation of the Academy and looking at the Zoffany portraits of the early academicians in uh, 1771. Um, and anyone who was here last week for Robin Simon's talk will already have heard a lot about that. 
Um, I'm then going to look at the presence of female models in the RA life class, which was a departure from academic tradition. Um, and lastly, I'll take a look at women artists' fight to get into the academy's life class, which was the, the last bastion of uh, artistic male privilege in the schools. And then I'll just end by considering some of the long-lasting effects of this history relating to gender and life drawing at the academy in the 20th century and uh, more recently. Um, so these two slides just set the scene. Um, academies of art were traditionally run by established male artists for male art students and their life classes usually featured exclusively male models. So we'll talk about women and life drawing um, or the life class from the Renaissance up to the middle of the 19th century could potentially be a very short one uh, as women were generally excluded from formal art education in Europe during this period. Uh, so on the left you can see Jean-Claude Natois' uh, image of the life class taking place at the uh, Académie Royale in Paris. Um, at the time that the Royal Academy was founded, um, this was the, the main, um, the, the most important academy in Europe and uh, the Royal Academy uh, modelled itself on it in many ways. Um, the French Academy did have some female academicians, but they didn't teach and they weren't really that involved um, in the running of the institution. Um, also on the right is Leonardo da Vinci's famous Vitruvian Man, exploring the ideal proportions of the human body, and which uh, specifically identifies man as the measure of all things. So the Royal Academy of Arts was based on, on this tradition, and accordingly all of the teachers and students in its schools were initially men. But it did alter the academic dynamic in some ways, firstly by providing female models as well as male, and we'll come back to that in a minute, uh, but secondly, two of its foundation members were women artists, as is well known, Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman. As I mentioned a minute ago, it wasn't the first time that uh, an art academy had women members, but it did pose a problem for one of the early iconic images of the new academicians, Johann Zoffany's group portrait um, from the Royal Collection. He decided to represent the new RAs gathered together in their life room, um, some of them you can see setting the pose of the model. Um, as Robin mentioned, strangely, none of them actually look like they're going to do any drawing, um, but apparently they're talking about it. It's, uh, it's looking at the idea of the academy as a place of debate as well as practical study. And Zoffany chose this setting to affirm the new academy's credentials, highlighting its unique status as Britain's first national art school. And crucially, it was the only one in the country at the time to follow the hierarchical continental system of art training in which students began by studying classical sculpture and anatomy before they were allowed into the life class. Um, so this made the life class the most important, most advanced stage of a student's training. Uh, and it was viewed as the key to learning to paint, sculpt and design in the grand manner, which was the sort of raison d'etre for the founding of the Royal Academy schools. There was a bit of a problem there, though. Um, the social and moral customs of the time made it unthinkable for the two female academicians ever to attend the life class, especially if ne uh, nude male models were sitting as they are in Zoffany's painting. To give a sense of how problematic this would have been, it's worth quoting Samuel Johnson's comments on women portraitists in 1775. He considered portraiture as an improper employment for a woman adding that any public art is very indelicate in a female. 
And that was a widely held view. So if the idea of a woman spending her time looking at someone long enough to paint their facial features and clothed body was considered very indelicate, it's clear uh, how much more of a step it would have been um, for the women to attend the life class, and it was basically out of the question. So Zofany's choice of setting posed a problem. He was quite a resourceful artist and found a clever way of fitting the women in. As you probably know, there's Kaufman on the left and Moser on the right. He put them in as portraits on the wall at the back of the room. Um, that might have seemed like the perfect solution at the time, and to some extent, I think it's a positive indication of the uh, attitude towards Moser and Kaufman as academicians that Zofany didn't get round this issue by just leaving them out altogether, although it should be said that this part of the canvas was added on um, later, so, um, well, before he finished the painting, but it was a, an addition, so he might have considered leaving them out. Um, However, being set at one remove, and they're quite literally objectified by being in turned into objects, portraits that are hung on the wall. This way of representing Kaufman and Moser makes a very distinct feature of their otherness and lack of parity with their male colleagues. And I should say that it wasn't just the life class. They weren't expected to attend meetings of the institution, although Moser later did. They weren't expected to teach. They were really very... Um, tangentially connected to it, mainly through the summer exhibition. Um, and there's been much discussion of this painting in the literature on 18th century British art and the history of women artists. And one writer, Angela Rosenthal, coined a particularly good phrase with this, uh, describing it as an icon of exclusion, filled with, as she puts it, unconscious anxiety, anxiety about female transgression. And so she and other writers have also uh, pointed out the proximity of this figure of um, uh, Richard Cosway, the por uh, miniature portrait painter. Um, and he has this rather odd gesture where he's got his cane firmly planted on the kind of lower abdomen of this um, nude fragment of a classical figure. Um, Rosenthal describes that as a, a violent gesture. And I think it's certainly, a, however you look at it, it's meant to be noticed. It's, it's deliberately there. Um, and she reads it as a sign of male anxiety relating to the female gaze or the idea that the women might ever be in the life room. Um, there does seem to be a sense in which Zofany imbued the painting with uncertainties regarding the status of the women. And we can look at it with the benefit of hindsight and see all of those dynamics at play. Uh, but it should also be said that Zofany liked a joke, especially a bawdy one, and his paintings are full of these sort of visual puns. Um, so whatever the result, his intention was probably to make fun of Cosway himself because he was a, a dandyish miniature painter um, and philanderer nicknamed the miniature macaroni and tiny cosmetic. Um, so I think it was, the joke was meant to be on him. Um, there are some interesting connections with Cosway and female artists, but annoyingly they're all later than this painting, so I can't say it's anything to do with that. But uh, he married a female artist, Maria Had uh, Hadfield, uh, who'd been a student of Zofany's, and he later is supposed to have had an affair with Mary Moser. Um, but enough of the gossip. Um, before moving on, it's uh, worth considering what the exclusion from life drawing meant for Kaufman and Moser's practice as artists. Um, obviously, that was already a problem they'd been struggling with, but uh, it was brought into sharper focus by the fact that the life class was so important in the new institution which they were a part of. Um, Moser was mainly a flower painter, so she did paint some historical scenes, so life drawing was less of a, a concern. 
but Kaufman painted portraits and neoclassical historical subjects that routinely featured semi-clad male and female figures. Um, this painting, which she produced for the Academy itself, is not quite a self-portrait, but it's certainly very self-referential, showing a female artist personifying design, engaged in drawing a study of the Belvedere torso. Officially, at least, drawing sculptures and casts of naked bodies was the closest a female artist like Kaufman was ever going to get to the real thing. It seems unlikely she would have ever sought to attend the RA life class, but she certainly sought to gain some experience of life drawing beyond casts and sculptures. Um, so the whole concept of a female artist was faintly scandalous at the time, and there's a lot of gossip and rumor around Kaufman, both as an artist and uh, just as a person. So there were rumors that she dressed up as a man to attend the life class, uh, no evidence for that, sadly, um, and that she hired male and female models to draw in, in uh, private. So there's likely to be some truth to that suggestion, but drawings of fully nude female, uh, sorry, male figures by Kaufman, um, like the one on the right, are much more likely to actually have been copied from works by other artists. Um, there are certainly examples where they've been identified and she drew figures after Raphael and Fragonard and various others. But the drawing on the left, um, showing a partially draped male figure, um, is much more likely to be drawn from life. Charles Cranmer, who was one of the RA's models and also modeled privately for Sir Joshua Reynolds, actually described how he would go to sit for Kaufman in her studio but he made sure to say that he only exposed his arms, shoulders, and legs, and that her father, also an artist, was always present, so it was all above board. Uh, but clearly, Kaufman's practice as an artist was considerably, considerably limited by her gender, and that persisted despite her exceptional success and status. So sadly, Zoffany's depiction of the academicians, which highlights the inferior standing of its female members, was to prove emblematic, if anything, um, rather than being the start of greater recognition for women artists in Britain, the two female founders of the Royal Academy were to represent a, a high point that wouldn't be equaled again until the middle of the 20th century. And so for the next hundred years, the only women welcome in the Academy's life room were as models. So this shows uh, Thomas Rowlandson's picture of the life class taking place at Somerset House, where the Academy was based at the time. And uh, so far, so good. It's a classic academy life class. The students are men, the academicians are men, and the model is a man. Um, but the academy decided shortly after opening that, in fact, its life class would feature women as well as men uh, models. And this derived not from the continental tradition that the RA was generally so keen to follow. It came from the tradition of life classes that predated the RA in London uh, and elsewhere in the country. And they tended to promote a more naturalistic, less classical, less doctrinaire approach. Hogarth uh, ran one of them, and he joked that providing women models helped him to sell subscriptions, uh, which is not so impressive. But uh, the RA wasn't run by subscription. It was uh, it paid for itself through its exhibition. And at this date, it was also bankrolled by King George III. So it didn't need to feature female models to attract interest. In fact, it. Uh, would rather that uh, public interest uh, didn't focus on that. But it was probably just by then there was an expectation that models in a life class would be male and female. 
Um, but the RA was a more formal and hierarchical environment than some of its immediate pre uh, predecessors. Students could only attend the life class once they'd passed through two stages in the antique academy, drawing plaster casts. Um, and yet there was still some moral anxiety surrounding the idea of female models sitting. And to counteract that, the RA put various rules in place, stating that the students must be over the age of 20 or married in order to attend the class when the female model was sitting. And comparing the two images by Rowlandson, who of course was a satirist, um, he's playing it fairly straight there, but there's a little bit of humour um, getting in here. You can see on this one, some of the artists are looking at the model, some of them are looking at their work, uh, but in this one, they're either staring at the model or chatting to each other, apparently, about her. Um, so there's definitely a sense that, uh, just as with the women academicians, the women models were treated in a, a different way from their male counterparts. Um, this is an image from the archive, uh, which also highlights this. Um, the women were uh, actually paid more than the men in a very unusual reversal of the pay gap. Uh, but that was considered shame money due to the perceived damage to their reputations and res uh, respectability. And this is uh, highlighted in early accounts like this one, the housekeeper's bill, where their identity is shielded and they're referred to only anonymously as the woman, whereas the male models are named. And you can see um, under various other things like bread and beer, there's a reference to the woman, and there's the woman, and then James Dyer and Charles Cranmer, who were um, male models and porters. Um, but uh, there's a suggestion that behavior wasn't always that great because the rules were reiterated at regular intervals. Um, this is a notice that hung in the life class saying, none but members of the academy or students of the school shall be admitted when the female model is sitting nor shall any student under 20 years of age, unless he be married, be allowed to study from that model. No student shall presume to enter the academy this night who is not qualified and admitted by the rules of the academy. Um, this is another sketch by Rowlandson, who I uh, should have said already studied at the RA schools. Um, he uh, didn't really cover himself in glory there, though, because he was uh, almost expelled from the schools in the 1770s apparently for firing a pea shooter at the female model while she was holding a pose. So you get the idea that uh, they weren't uh, respected in the same way as the men. Um, the men, as I said, often doubled up as porters uh, and male models. Um, John Mallins, Samuel Strauger, Charles Cramer, all known to have uh, done both jobs for the academy. And increasingly, as time went on, uh, the academy sought out athletes and soldiers for its male models uh, for their developed physiques. But the women were generally considered to be prostitutes and treated with less respect than the, man, the men. And evidence suggests that, in some cases at least, that was correct. Um, there's an episode relating to the sculptor Nollikens in which uh, a madam from a brothel north of Oxford Street upbraids him for the way he treated one of uh, the women from her brothel. As a, as a model who'd been privately uh, posing for him. She said, what a scurvy way you behaved to young Bet Belmano yesterday. The girl is hardly able to move a limb. Think of keeping a young creature eight hours in that room without a thread on her or a morsel of anything to eat or a drop to drink and then to give her only two shillings to bring home. Neither Mr. Fusley nor Mr. Tresham would have served me so. Uh, Tresham and Fusley being closely involved with the RA schools. That certainly suggests um, this is where some of the models were coming from. 
Um, although I did find an interesting reference uh, recently to the fact that male models might also find workers prostitutes. Uh, there's a, an unpleasant publication called Nocturnal Revels, which describes a, a tableau at a brothel. And uh, one of its selling points is that it had a group of six of the most athletic, well-proportioned young men, some of them royal academic figures. Um, this is another drawing by a student, and again, just highlighting this sort of um, interest in the models that was, they were trying to discourage. Um, they weren't meant to concentrate on the face, and some of the models even are reported to have sat with uh, cloth covering their face. Um, and this apparently made Fuseli very angry that he'd done this kind of caricature of the, the model. And these are just some examples to show you of drawings from the life class. Um, they're actually sometimes um, less finished than you might expect of academic drawings, and there isn't uh, always a huge difference in the way that the men and women are represented, but in general the men are often in more active heroic poses and the women slightly more passive, but, but not always. So the painter James Northcutt, who studied with Reynolds and at the RA schools, recalled that behaviour was generally good during the class because people had to concentrate in order to uh, do good work. Um, but that was because of a sort of benign form of objectification. He wrote, the stillness, the artificial light, the attention to what they're about draws off any idle thoughts and the students regard the figure and point out its defects or beauties precisely as if it were clay or marble. And that's partly to do with the fact that they all trained drawing these plaster casts before they got near the uh, living models. Um, transitional moments at the beginning and end of the class prove problematic, though. And Northcott goes on to observe that as the, the class drew to a close, students sometimes grew restless. He claimed that certain young men sometimes watched the women out, though they were not of a very attractive appearance, as none but those who were past their prime would sit and that some of the young men had been lured into a course of dissipation and ruined by such connections. So it's just interesting to note in passing that the concern was for the men who were studying um, at the academy and that they were um, fraternizing with prostitutes. It wasn't for the women who were sitting, but as the 19th century went on, that turned around completely, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, but I just wanted to briefly mention William Etty, who was the first English artist to make a, a career, really, of painting the nude. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to include him is that uh, Northcote complained that the female models were often past their prime. But by the time Etty was a teacher in the life class, uh, which was a, a few decades later, he and other RAs actually made efforts to ensure that the models they brought to the academy were of what they considered attractive appearance. Uh, he would trawl shops and other locations looking for suitable young women and occasionally men who might be persuaded to sit. And his descriptions are slightly disturbing as he lists the model's attributes and talks about them as though they were already paintings. Uh, for instance, a Miss H who is of fine form and colour, she would be an acquisition. His paintings were not always appreciated. Um, this one in particular... Um, the fact that they were too close to what he did in the life class was a bone of contention. And uh, one of the Times critics actually said that he mistakes the use of nudity in painting and presents in the most gross and literal manner the unhappy models of the Royal Academy. That's uh, just a couple of examples by William Mulready, who again was uh, famous for his life drawing in the middle of the 19th century. And he used this uh, very subtle technique with a few... Um, colours of chalk to create flesh tones, but even that, um, deviating from pencil drawings, was actually quite controversial and uh, 
the critic John Ruskin called these vulgar and bestial. It's quite hard to see how we find that one. But it's at this juncture in the mid-19th century that the situation, of course, becomes more complicated. Up to this date, there were no female students at the academy. One, uh, Miss Margaret, Margaret <laughs> excuse me, Patrickson, uh, was given special permission by Henry Fusley as keeper in the early uh, years of the 19th century to draw the casts when the men were off on holiday. But that was it. Um, the first woman to be enrolled was in 1860, and that actually sounds like quite an early date and suggests the academy might have been quite enlightened in compa comparison to other institutions. Um, but that's not really the case. Um, it was not a decision directly made by the academy, and I'm sure it would have taken much longer to come to a decision had its hand not been forced. Um, from the middle of the 19th century, there were growing calls for greater provision for women's art education, specifically the admittance of women to the RA schools. In 1859, the Women's Petition to the Royal Academy of Arts stated that no less than 120 ladies have exhibited their works in the RA alone during the last three years, and the profession must be considered as fairly open to women. It pointed out that uh, men were given free education at the academy, but the difficulty and expense of obtaining good instruction obliged many women artists to enter upon their profession without adequate preparatory study and thus prevent their attaining the position for which their talents might qualify them. Um, that got them nowhere. They got a letter saying that uh, there wasn't any space for women. They'd have to have separate classes so they couldn't do it. Um, so that wasn't what did the trick in, in 1860. That was instead um, brought about by a much more enterprising method or a subterfuge as one of the RAs described it. A young artist named Laura Herford submitted her drawing for admission as a student and only signed it with her initials. She was accepted. So this is just a list of what was known as the probationers. So students came in first for a few months. They were accepted on the basis of a drawing. If the drawings were good, they got to stay. Um, so this is just a list of all the probationers, and she's one of them. They think she's a man. Um, short time later, there's another reference in the council minutes. The minutes state, in reference to the fact that one of the probationers recently accepted into the antique schools is a young woman, it was proposed and resolved that young women students be placed in communication with the housekeeper and be specially recommended to her. That the keeper be requested to see that the strictest propriety be observed in the antique school with reference to such students and that they be instructed to refer to him in case of any difficulty. Other contemporary accounts provide further information suggesting that the RAs actually went back to search their rule book to see if there ever had been uh, any written rule excluding women. But unsurprisingly, because the academy was full of unwritten rules, there never had been one, and so they let her in. Um, the account raises some questions, though, as it gives the impression of the situation being very readily accepted. Um, that might just be the council minutes. They're generally a tight-lipped document that doesn't give much detail of any debate or discussion. But there were suggestions, even at the time, that Laura Herford might have been deliberately encouraged by certain RAs who were sympathetic to the cause, and that's a possibility. Um, but I think there's definitely an air of the accidental about it, nevertheless. Herford herself recalled being greeted by the keeper, Charles Landseer, who she said, received me good-naturedly, though very awkwardly, as if he scarcely knew what would come of it. Um, so despite the uh, groundbreaking um, entrance of Laura Herford into the RA schools, in a way, she's not all that relevant to this story. 
Um, that's just one of her works uh, to show what she produced. Uh, but because she actually never got anywhere near the RA's life class, and neither did any other, other women admitted to the academy before the 1890s, Herford had to pay to attend life drawing classes elsewhere. And in her time, the women were initially confined to drawing casts, and then shortly afterwards, also allowed to join the school of painting. And what they did there was make copies after the old masters, or paint from a living but clothed model, making head and drapery studies. So the women's continued exclu exclusion from the life class was a great bone of contention and a symbol of their lower status at the academy. Gertrude Massey, who studied at the RA in the 1880s, expressed her irritation with the situation, saying, we were supposed to accept the conventional point of view that women had no legs. They had heads, arms, and feet, apparently linked together by clothes. So the women decided to take matters in their own, into their own hands, and they had to fight to get into the life class. And this goes on for decades. So there is a, a, a very interesting series of petitions in the, life, uh, sorry, in the archive uh, relating to this. And they begin quite apologetically and become increasingly blunt. Um, and just like the original petition from 1859, they um, make the point that uh, the women cannot study what's called the highest branch of art without life drawing, and that, it's, uh, that many of them need to make a living from art and that this is hindering them. But this one's quite interesting. You can see how much writing is in these. You probably can't read it, but they make their case quite uh, at some length. But by 1900, it just says, we want the same privileges as the male students of the schools. They really lost patience by that stage. I mean. So in 1893, after numerous petitions, finally the women were allowed uh, a life class drawing from the nude female and the semi-draped male. So this was a huge change. But semi-draped doesn't really cover it, if you pardon the pun. The RA was very keen to ensure that there was extensive coverage of the male um, body. The rules stated that the drapery to be worn by the model should consist of ordinary bathing drawers and a cloth of light material nine foot long by three foot wide, which shall be wound round the loins over the drawers, passed between the legs and tucked in over the waistband. And finally, a thin leather strap shall be fastened around the loins in order to ensure the cloth shall keep its place. And unfortunately, I don't have any academy drawings to show you. Uh, Disappointingly, the Academy didn't collect its student drawings, so we've only got one or two by women and only a, a handful by uh, male students too. Um, these uh, both drawings are by Evelyn de Morgan, who studied not at the RA but at the Slade, which opened in 1871. And from the start, the Slade promoted life drawing and training for women artists. But it is fascinating, I think, to see that it, these are from quite early on at the Slade, that they still were also uh, expecting the women at that point to draw draped men. And there was recently a, an exhibition of her drawings from the Slade called Men in Pants, which was uh, <laughs> bluntly. Uh, but quite interesting to see that in her own practice later on, she's still um, using a bit of drapery there when presumably she didn't need to. Um, and by this date, I should just say that there were plenty of alternatives to the academy schools. Women set up cooperatives. Um, some private art schools offered life drawing for women, and many women also travelled abroad to various centres like Paris. And um, this is the Academy of Julienne, uh, where they could uh, gain access to life drawing. But the situation at the Royal Academy continued to be significant, nevertheless, um, as a matter of principle, because of its status as the oldest art school in the country. 
But the admittance of women and their fight for equal rights in art education was further complicated by the moral climate of the time, um, which had seen external attention gradually focus on the morality of life drawing from the 18, on, uh, 1850s onwards. And that leads to a campaign to actually try to stop life drawing in art schools altogether. Um, so the academy was kind of being squeezed from both sides. Externally, people wanted it to stop life drawing altogether, and internally, the women wanted more life drawing, and it, it didn't have much wiggle room there. Um, but this was all focused specifically on the female body. Uh, according to this reading, it was degrading to the female models to expect them to sit for the class, and uh, for some reason, for these moralizing campaigners, women drawing either male or female models was considered the worst of the worst. And so this really got in the way of the, the campaign of the women for life drawing. Um, ironically, though, in this case, the Academy's tendency to stick to its traditions meant that it actually gave a very vigorous defense of life drawing. Um, so I just wanted to show you these by G.F. Watts, the academician who stepped into the debate to defend the practice, and he said, if the human form is not to be studied, painted, and sculptured, there will be an end to art. Prudery is one of the worst forms of indecency. And there was plenty of support for the Academy's view. Um, this is a satirical print uh, making fun of John Corkett Horsley, who was one of the main campaigners against life drawing. And uh, he tended to be called Clothes Horsley. And here he's uh, dressed up as the offended British matron who's saying, Oh dear, oh dear, who could have sat for that looking at the Venus Domino? Oops, wrong one. <laughs> okay. So by the early years of the 20th century, the women were on a more equal footing at the RA, but there was a certain backlash. Um, the academician G.D. Leslie, for instance, complained of the invasion of women artists. And I was surprised recently to find that the annual report of 1914 states quite openly that there were no vacancies for female students because they were outnumbering the male. And that apparently was a situation that uh, couldn't uh, be allowed to continue. Ironically, within a few years, almost all of the students were women because the, the men uh, were involved uh, in the First World War. Um, the women were too. They, uh, spent their, they divided their time between uh, studying in the schools and war work, uh, doing various things, including dazzle camouflage. But this is a detailed drawing by one of the women at this date, uh, Winifred Broughton Edge, and uh, she won a prize for life drawing in uh, 1917. don't think I'll go into this at the moment, but that is just to point out that all of this was also taking uh, place against the backdrop of the suffrage movement, and that that uh, was also involving the art world at this point. Uh, many women artists were involved in the movement, but uh, the Deeds Not Words campaign of 1914 also began to attack artwork. So on the left is the famous attack on the Rokeby Venus at the National Gallery, and on the right, uh, the attack on the portrait of Henry James at the RA. Uh, both um, suffragettes who did these attacks said their reason was monetary value. They wanted to attack the art for its uh, financial worth. But um, Mary Richardson, who attacked the Rokeby Venus, also said that she didn't like the way the men stood gawping at it all day. So the Issues are all obviously interconnected. But so just to start bringing things to a close, um, I wanted to consider a few things uh, in the 20th century and more recently. 
Um, so even though women had won their fight to join the life class at the academy, the effects of their exclusion continued to reverberate throughout the 20th century. Many of the older generation of female artists had not necessarily had the chance to draw from life while training, and this impacted the two first elected women royal academicians, who were the long-awaited successors to Kaufman and Moser, Annie Swinnerton and Laura Knight, should just make the distinction that the foundation members, Kaufman and Moser, were nominated, uh, well, sorry, um, they, they founded the academy, so none of them were elected. They were you know, uh, a group who um, were there from the start. Um, but Annie Swinnerton and Laura Knight had to be elected by the General Assembly of Male Academicians, so it's slightly different, and it's probably why <laughs> they had to wait so long for that to happen. Swinnerton painted allegorical scenes, sometimes featuring nudes, as you can see on the left. She hadn't studied at the RA, but in Manchester, where she came up against the very same problems and had to travel to Paris and Rome to practice life drawing. Ironically, her paintings of nudes were sometimes dismissed for being too realistic and unromanticized. The critic F.G. Stevens, for instance, described her Cupid and Psyche on the left as being without the sweetness, evenness, or purity of youth. Um, Swinnerton was also an active campaigner for uh, women's suffrage and painted the portrait of Dame uh, Millicent Fawcett on the right. She was nominated for election to the Academy three times before finally being an elected an associate of the Royal Academy in 1922 at the age of 77. Um, she wrote that she had fought and suffered for recognition, stating that when she was young, the world did not want the work of women, however sincere, however good. Again, like the founding member, she didn't actually have that much involvement because at the age of uh, 77, she was considered a, a senior member and she was an associate, which no longer exists, but it used to be a two-tier system. So there were associate Royal Academicians and if they were lucky enough, they then went up to become a full Royal Academician. Uh, so Swinnerton died in 1933 and was never promoted to full Academician. It was Laura Knight who became the first elected woman member in 1936. At this point, even the Daily Mail thought she'd been kept waiting for a long time because her, her pictures were so successful in the summer exhibition. Every year, their critic would say, why is she not a Royal Academician? Um, she acknowledged Swinnerton's efforts to break the barriers of prejudice, as she put it, and said that she had profited from um, Swinnerton's um, accomplishments. I included Knight here too, as despite being younger than Swinnerton, she also had problems accessing life drawing as a student. She studied at Nottingham, where she was kept out of the life class where her, while her future husband Harold attended, and she was actually reduced to copying his work. I mean, there's lots been written about this, but uh, just to briefly say, I think even uh, just looking at the two images, you can see that she had a point to make here. Um, most of her paintings show clothed, uh, figures, but uh, for her self-portrait of 1913 and her Royal Academy diploma work, she made sure uh, to show the nude. But eventually, the life class itself began to suffer from its prominence in the academic canon, and many art students, whether men or women, preferred to avoid it altogether, began to be dropped from the degree courses of the main art colleges from the 1960s onwards in favour of art historical and critical studies. But despite being seen as outdated by many, life drawing hung on at the Royal Academy, and a term of life drawing was still compulsory until the 1990s. 
this painting by student uh, Helen Clapcott from the late 70s doesn't necessarily uh, overflow with the impression that anyone was clamoring to get into the life class by that stage. There's someone hanging about on the, in the doorway, probably having a cigarette and somebody not sure if they're coming or going. Um, just by the way, I think it's quite interesting to notice this feature. I think she was looking at Zoffany and uh, having a little sort of riff on that. Uh, but the From Life project, which is now in the Sackler Galleries, traces the fortunes of life drawing after it was jettisoned from the art school curriculum. And one of the interesting things about that, I thought, was how it illustrates the way that the life class sur uh, survived on the periphery. So it continued not in degree courses, but in foundation years, technical colleges, private art schools, places like the Royal Academy, and classes um, to the extent that all the artists interviewed in the book accompanying From Life from David Hockney to Leanne Lang and Eddie Peake had all done some life drawing as part of their training. And Eddie Peake had even had a stint as a model himself. It's also clear from the accompanying series of interviews with artists how the legacy of issues around gender continued to inform attitudes towards life drawing. Gillian Waring, for instance, points out that when she studied at Goldsmith, in, sorry, Goldsmith College in the 1980s, uh, life drawing was actually banned because of its perceived objectification of the female model. Despite making a feminist argument to continue the practice, she was strongly encouraged to pursue other activities. And I think this makes two recent projects by women in the RA life room a fitting place to end. Um, both Leanne Lang, who was a student at the Academy in 2006, and Kathy Pilkington, the uh, academician and RA professor of sculpture, both recently engaged with the lingering historical associations of the Academy's life room, both producing works featuring artificial stand-ins for the human female model. So these are Lang's photographs. Um, she produced these in a series called Casts, inspired by the historical art school apparatus still to be found in the RA life room, and also relating to the attitudes towards women and life drawing, which she described as, as subtly lingering in the schools. She states that she felt uncomfortable paying someone to sit naked for her, and instead she uses models to make latex figures, which then feature in the photograph. Yeah, so you might uh, think that some of these are figures, but they're latex models made from real people. Um, the one on the top left is called Ars Moriendi, and I just wanted to read you what Leanne Lang had to say about it. She said, I was trying to create a picture where the female figure in the image would be both looked at, a sculpted figure, so she's nude, but at the same time she's active, she's doing something creative. So I made her create the miniature version of the Christ figure. So she's got a little miniature model of Christ there. It's a reference, she says, to the symbolic history of women artists. They have existed in that in-between space for a long time. Maybe not now, but certainly at the RA, women used to be mainly models and muses. I'm interested in the weird in-between space between being an active agent and a nude model, and my dolls are somewhere in between. Um, last year, the uh, RA's Professor of Sculpture, Kathy Pilkington, went even further, taking over the whole of the life room uh, with her project called Anatomy of a Doll. And she describes being terrified of life drawing when she was a 19-year-old student, and that she only came back to it later through teaching herself anatomical modelling skills in clay. And very similarly to Lang, she speaks of her fascination with dolls, being that they, as she puts it, sit in the mid-ground between subject and object. She's not telling a narrative. She's not even a she. She's an object, adding, you can see the dolls pretending to be people, 
and yet are reminded that they're built to serve a purpose. Uh, but Pilkington also describes how she um, made this installation and saying that she had felt she had to colonize the life room and make it her own. She found the um, various castes that uh, people the life room um, a very dominating presence. And so she said she took ownership by covering them with fabric and, as she puts it, transforming them from important men into soft dolls and soft, more formal shapes, turning them into my own objects. Um, but like Lang, she also specifically references the problematic history of being a woman artist in the RA life room. And so I'd just like to end with her statement on how she dealt with this. She wrote, with the help of surrealist thinking, it's possible to go beyond that feeling of simply being the wrong sex. I'm consciously joining in with the objectification of the female form, but on my own terms and with glee. As a sculptor, I'm more interested in making form than anything else and I'm always looking for a wooden awkwardness in combination with moments of utter believability. Thank you. Thank you. That was really very interesting. Um, you talked mainly about the viewpoint from the outside. Did you find anything about the model's own uh, experiences? Not very much, no. I mean, I think there was this tradition of them being anonymous, and although that changes as time goes on, I think probably you'd need to end up looking more at the 20th century for that, and I was mainly looking earlier. I mean, you do get um, some recollections of models, but they're often writing about modelling privately for artists. I've seen quite a few of those, but I haven't found much, and maybe other, other people have, but... Uh, haven't found so much where the models are describing their experience in the, the life class at the academy. So it'd be interesting to, to get some. Just a couple of questions about body parts. Um, around the pre-Ruskin time, uh, were the artists drawing what they saw, or did they did they remove the pubic hair themselves in their drawings, or, or were the models depilated? And the other thing was, um, in the queer art at, at Tate, they had the example of the male model who uh, used to have breasts slapped on uh, to, for when uh, female models weren't available. I wonder if you've got anything around that to, to add. From what I find looking at uh, the images, it's, um, it varies quite a lot. So even in some of the older 18th century drawings, they are quite direct and they draw the body as they see it. But then others don't. And um, I've got one example, I think, further back. Oh, that's quite late, but if you look at this drawing, probably, I mean, that, she, you know, she's drawn the pubic hair. And, uh, mm. Yes, yes. Yeah, not always, though. You do find, I mean, I think generally there's a um, chronological thing that the earlier ones tend to hint at it rather than draw in detail, but it's sometimes there. Um, yeah, I mean, that, obviously, he hasn't. <laughs> if I can get back to some of the earlier ones. Yeah, I mean, again, he hasn't, but I think some of the kind of, yeah, this, the 18th century ones here, there's some, there's a bit of pubic hair there. So it's, uh, it's a little bit coy, but it does vary. It's not as quite as uh, clear cut as you might think that they just avoided it <laughs> and then started to draw. Yeah, well, that's kind of an old tradition in a way, isn't it? Because of that academic... Um, custom of only having male models in life classes and then artists having to go elsewhere to find women to draw. So people like Michelangelo, I mean, you can see that some of them are clearly, you know, men. <laughs> They've just added, 
you know, female anatomy to what was basically a, a male figure. So, um, I mean, I don't know that that happened at the Royal Academy. I've not found any reference to that, but I think it did happen as well. I wanted to ask you, how would you describe the role of the female model today? Are there still issues of objectification or is it refrained in a sense of celebrating nudity? Yeah, uh, again, I think it varies because I, was, I, in a way, personally thought that all of those, well, not all of those, but a lot of those issues had been resolved and that, uh, you know, male and female models were treated the same. But reading all of those artists' interviews in the From Life, Artists Working From Life project, so many of them make a reference to these issues and that they found life drawing problematic because of the um, you know, idea of gender and how it's been so imbalanced historically. So Yinka Shonibare says, you know, he doesn't want to draw female models or, you know, someone being paid to sit there without their clothes, but he found it problematic. Um, you know, others went through educations like Gillian Waring in the 80s where she said she wasn't allowed to draw from life because it was seen as objectifying women. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of, in a funny way, it's, it is sort of still going on. But then others, I suppose, talk about, you know, the agency of models and models being part of the creative process. And Leanne Lang talks about that. But even then, it's at one remove because she doesn't want to pay someone to sit for her. She pays people to let her, you know, slather uh, latex over them so she can make the model uh, figures. But uh, she doesn't want to do life things. It's all still going on. <laughs> Is the RCA st still um, including uh, life drawing in their classes? Here? Yes. It's no longer compulsory and it hasn't been since the 1990s, but there is a life drawing, you know, the life room very much survives and it's a very evocative space and it does still host life drawing classes, but increasingly they're not so much for the students of the Royal Academy as for staff and other groups of people who come in. So it's still, you know, I think there's... It's actually picking up a little bit, I think, the interest in life drawing, and it might be being rehabilitated, but it's no longer in any way a part of the course because it's a three-year postgraduate degree, so it's not really the stage where anyone would even uh, be expected to be having to do life drawing, but uh, you can. <laughs> so. Can I just ask if, uh, in your research, you found any ethnic diversity within the models? Yeah, there is. I mean, I think the figure on the left is thought to be um, a um, man of African descent. And there's quite a lot of um, references, particularly in the sort of early 19th, late 18th century, and even later on, actually, in the Victorian era, um, of, about diversity in models. But it's, again, a bit like the way that the women were objectified. It's seen as a novelty, and people were sought out for their novelty. You know, so, again, I think... Uh, talking about those interviews with the artists from life, that comes up as well, that uh, you know, people sort of feeling uncomfortable with that tradition. Too. And there was not very much uh, ethnic diversity in terms of the students until probably the 20, early 20th century when that starts to change. Well, thank you very much. Um, if you'd like to find out more about some of our events that we'll be hosting this week as part of International Women's Day, I do have some flyers at the front here and all of our events are available on the website. Um, but please join me in thanking Annette Wickham for a wonderful talk today. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.